Good morning. Good morning. Now, let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for the way you run your universe. We thank you so much for Jesus. We ask that your spirit will join us and lighten our minds, bring us to, closer together in the bonds of love and trust, that we can re- reveal you in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Our lesson today is lesson six, roots of Ab- the roots of Abraham. And the second paragraph of Sabbath's lesson says, in his journeying, Abraham is suspended in the void without his past, which he has lost, and without his future, which he does not see. Between these two calls, which frame Abraham's journey of faith, Abraham hears the voice of God, which reassures him. Do not be afraid. These words of God mark the three sections of Abraham's journey, which we will study this week. You know, maybe it's just me because I'm a psychiatrist, and as a psychiatrist, I'm very, uh, very concerned with how things are said, the way people have their self-talk, the way they frame things, the word choices they make. So maybe I'm just being too technical, but I did not like how this was worded when it said, he was suspended in the void without his past, which he has lost. Really? Did Abraham's life history prior to his leaving Ur, his prior experiences, his knowledge, his perspectives, his understanding of the culture and the world around him, his abilities, his language, his relationships, did they all, did, in other words, did he have amnesia? He left and had no history. Or was Abraham still impacted by his beliefs, perspectives, worldview, language, all the things that were part of his history? So he left Ur, but he still took his history with him, didn't he? We will read about him rescuing Lot this week. It'll be in the lesson. Well, who was Lot? It was his nephew. Well, when did that relationship get established? Wasn't that part of his history? He, but he had no history. He left it behind. It just, it just, and, and then when his son needed a wife, what did he instruct his servant to do? Go back home and get one from his relatives, but but he doesn't have any relatives. He left his history behind. I mean, it just I, I, maybe I'm being too picky. I don't know. I just didn't like the way it was worded. Yes, he left, and so maybe it could have been worded this way: Abraham left his support systems, his resources, his home and family and his community behind. Okay, yes, he did all that, but he didn't leave his history behind. He took that with him, didn't he? Yeah. So we, as we move forward, have a history. We have stories. Those life stories impact uh, how we view the world, uh, the, uh, the, the values, the experiences, um, and it frames significantly who we are as people. Sunday's lesson is about the covenant with Abraham, that all nations on earth will be blessed through his seed, meaning through Jesus. And then in the second paragraph, it says the fulfillment of that prophecy begins with leaving the past. Abram leaves all that is familiar to him, his family, his country, even a part of himself. The intensity of this going is reflected in the repetition of the key word go, which occurs seven times in this context. Abraham first has first to leave his country, Ur of the Chaldeans, which also is Babylonia. This call to go out of Babylon has a long history among biblical prophets, and it gives some of the references there. Remember, the Bible is a historic document. It documents the life of real historic people doing real historic stuff. But there were millions of people who lived in human history, and the Bible selects a very few 
to be recorded in its pages. One of the uh, positions I've taken in, in this class, and we're going to show it repeatedly in today's lesson, is that God selected these real historic people that did real historic stuff to be recorded in Scripture because not only do we get the history of what they actually did, their history serves as object lessons to a larger reality. That's one of the reasons these stories are here, to teach a bigger picture, the plan of salvation. So Ur, or Babylon, represents Satan's kingdom. And what is the underlying foundation of every earthly, excuse me, actually the foundation of every kingdom, earthly or heavenly, the foundation, what all kingdoms are built on, are, are their laws. And God's kingdom is built on God's law, which is creator who built reality, the laws that life exists upon, we call those design laws, like the laws of health and the laws of physics and the moral laws, how God built reality to operate. That's what health, you can't have health while violating the laws of health. Humans can't build reality, though. We can't build space, time, energy, matter, life. We can't do it. So we make up rules that we call laws that require external oversight and infliction of punishment by the ruling authority in order to enforce. All human governments work in this way. And of all the various nations that are in the Bible story arc, meaning they're interacting with Israel, Babylonia or Babylon is the first of all the nations that had a legal code, the Code of Hammurabi. So coming out of Babylon is a, is a way of saying coming out of the systems of the world, coming out of imperialism, coming out of authority, coming out of viewing God as a dictator in heaven who makes up rules and uses power to inflict punishments and needs someone to make payments to him so he doesn't hurt you. Coming out of Babylon means returning to worship the creator God who built reality and whose laws are the basis of life and health. Abraham leaves Ur, or Babylon, is an object lesson for the people of God who are to leave the systems of this world behind with their imposed laws and inflicted punishments as a way of achieving justice. Notice the, the, the uh, constant drumbeat in our society today for justice. Environmental justice, racial justice, gender justice. We need justice, we need justice, we need justice. But what's the means that we're being drummed to get the justice? Violence, coercion, coercion. Uh, get your uh, political people in office to pass the laws that you want to coerce and force people to do something that their consciences are not really convicted is the right thing for them to do. This is the pursuit of justice through imperialism. It's a big trap. Doesn't mean necessarily the stated goal is wrong. We want a good environment. We want to all people are treated equally in Christ. There's no male or female, uh, Jew or Greek. We're all one in Christ. We want racial equality in how we treat people. But you can't get that by setting up laws that discriminate against people so that they can be more equal. It's always at the expense of someone else. That's right. Human systems always disenfranchise somebody at the advantage of somebody else. That's what they always do. So, those who believe, and this comes back to our religious beliefs within our church, coming out of Babylon, do we teach God's government works like human governments? We're in legal trouble with the legal authority in heaven, and he's required by law and justice to use power to torture and kill you unless he gets a blood payment of a human sacrifice. 
This is Roman paganism Christianized. And the churches teach it. The Adventist church teaches it. Yet, the Adventist church was blessed with a different message in 1888. The righteous by faith message, which was to call people out of this pagan way, this penal way, this legal way of seeing things, into the worshiping him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in the midst. Creator worship, which heals and restores righteousness in us. That's what the message was for. And this church has been just like Israel in, in, in Old Testament times, battling between the prophets of God the, in Old Testament times who were giving the message of life and the imperial authorities who were oppressing the messengers. And this church has had the same battle going on between those who represent the righteousness by faith message and those who represent imperial authority over others. So we are called to leave Babylon. The saints stop using the methods of the world and they live out, live out God's law. Truth presented in love, leaving people free. So like Abraham left Ur, we are to leave the methods and practices of the world behind. We do not get a new history. We get new hearts and right spirits that live out God's methods as his law is written in our hearts and minds. And, and this is how we treat others. And so what happens is, Situations like the last several years with COVID happen in the world which require people to make choices in governance of self how they will treat their neighbor. Will I use the power that I have of my office, president of a university, president of a conference, a director or manager of a business, uh, CEO of a hospital corporation, uh, officer in, in uh, the, the, the government somewhere. Well, I, pardon? ICU nurse. Yeah, ICU nurse. Well, I use the authority that had been given me to coerce and pressure somebody, mislead, tell what some call noble lies, to mislead people, to get them to do what you think they need to do, Rather than the godly way, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind, Romans 14.5. We present the truth in love, and we respect the individual's ability to weigh the pros and cons for their circumstance and make the choice for themselves. Understand, yes, but we need to save lives. Okay, you've got a good motive. But what happens if with your good motive to save lives, you use the methods of Satan to coerce and compel or deceive people That's right. You write Satan's law into your character. I become, if I do those things, and so these circumstances happen in the world, and we are called to leave Babylon, leave identifying with the systems of the world, leave the authoritarian hierarchies. Well, I was just following orders. Well, I don't know. Somebody in charge said so. It was the CDC. It was the, it was the doctor. It was the, it was the pastor. It was the Pope. The Pope gave a ruling, and, and we, therefore, we're just burning people at the stake because the Pope said it's the righteous thing to do. You see the exact same methods used in the Dark Ages. Not truth, presented in love to convert, but authoritarian power to coerce. We are called to leave the system, to not participate in using those methods and governance of self. And as we leave the old ways of the world behind, no longer identifying with these imposed law, penal, legal theologies, but instead advancing the creator God and living in harmonies with, with his methods, we, like Abraham, move towards the promised land. 
We see another land, a heavenly land. That's where we want to live, where everybody is safe because everybody loves others more than self. And your neighbor won't use the worldly methods to compel and coerce you. Your neighbor loves you so much that if somebody tried to hurt you, they'd die for you. That's the heavenly land, the Canaan we're looking for. How do you uh, answer someone then if you're talking with somebody and they uh, you know, say, well, I'm doing this to save some lives, but... I mean, you don't want to be forceful with them and say you're wrong, or how, how do you uh, answer in, in, a, in a loving way? Well, I would say, what are you actually doing? What are you actually doing to save someone's life? Oh, well, there was a car wreck, and they were pinned, and the gas tank was on fire, and I ran in, and I, and I pulled them out. Oh, good. That's a great thing to do something to save someone's life, right? I mean, well, so you have to ask, what are they doing? What are they actually doing? Well, I'm forcing this person... To, to, to take a medicine. Now, are there times we do that? Do parents with their small children have them take medicine that the child doesn't want? Yeah. I, I scrape my... Uh, some of you are old enough to remember something called mephiolate. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody remember mephiolate? Okay. We got mephiolate. Some of you are young enough to not know what that is. Okay. It was kind of an orangey strong-smelling, alcohol-based disinfectant that when you got an abrasion and got a, a cut, your mother or father would put that on it, and it would burn. It would burn. And you saw it coming, and you're going, no, no, as a child. And they would hold you and put it on there anyway. The breath of Satan. Okay, yeah, right. Okay, so are there times we do things? And then as a psychiatrist, I can tell you there are times that we um, forcibly medicate people, people who are... Uh, floridly psychotic and believe that they need to pluck out their own eyeballs or, or cut off their own hands, we restrain them and medicate them until they have, until when? When do we do it? Can and, govern self. Until they can govern self again, until some semblance of reasonable self-control is re- restored, and then we remove that, and they have their liberty back. So there are times we do that, but we're not talking about people who are actual children, or people who are floridly or grossly psychotic, or late-stage Alzheimer's dementia. We're talking about people, dealing with people who have capacity for reasoning, thinking, and self-determination. And then we still want to use principles that violate their individuality and force them to do things. That is contrary to God's government. And so you have to ask them, who are you doing it to? What are you doing? And you expose the methodology as fraudulent. So like Abraham left behind his family and human inheritance in order to receive an inheritance from God, we must leave behind things that tie us to this world, be reborn as children of God, and receive our heavenly inheritance. Genesis 12, in Monday's lesson, Genesis 12, 1 through 9, God calls Abraham to leave her, and he accepts the call, and he and his nephew Lot, his wife Sarah, and his servants all leave and go to the Negev. Abraham's choice to leave his home, his family, his friends, except those that went with him, all that was familiar to him, this choice was an act of faith. But when he arrives in the land, again, real historic people doing real historic stuff, we're going to look at the actual history of what's recorded, but then we're going to expand it to what's the object lesson. What's what's it teaching us? But when he arrives in the land where God led him, God led him into this land, there's a famine when he gets there. And in response to the famine, he goes down to Egypt where he tells Sarah to present him herself 
as his sister rather than his wife for fear of Pharaoh wanting Sarah for his own and killing Abraham. Yes. I just had a thought. Could he not have trusted God to provide during the famine? Why did he have to go down to Egypt? Very good. This is exactly the question. Identifying what's going on here. He leaves his home based on faith. And he leaves his home based on faith for what reason? Why did God call him? There's a purpose in calling Abraham to go there. What was the purpose that God called him to go there? Separation. Separating from his historic family who were practicing. But, but for what purpose? Was it just for Abraham's personal spiritual journey? Or was there a larger purpose going on? Say it, say it. Preserve the seed or an avenue. To be the line for the Messiah. To establish a space and place for this branch of the human family to fulfill the Genesis 3.15 promise. The Genesis 3.15 promise, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. It's through the branch of Abraham's descendants that this seed is coming. God calls him out to fulfill the promise of the coming Messiah to save humanity. So this is a larger picture that's going on. The focus here... Uh, on on Abraham's family, which will narrow down through Isaac and Jacob, uh, and then all the way down to Judah. So once God identifies Abraham and calls him, do you think Satan ignores Abraham? Or Satan has an agenda now uh, to, uh, let's do what we can to stop the plan. I don't want Messiah to come. And immediately after he arrives in the promised land, then with this understanding the larger context, what's happening, as soon as he arrives in the promised land, he experiences a famine. Well, who's likely behind the famine? (laughs) You know, we have evidence from the book of Job that Satan has some ability to affect the weather when God permits. God permits it here because, as was suggested... When the famine occurs, Abraham has an opportunity now, doesn't he? What's his opportunity? Trust. To trust. And if he, if he turns to God and trust, what's going to happen to his faith? It's going to grow stronger. That's right. So Satan is working to destroy. God permits because it presents Abraham with an opportunity for growth. But what does Abraham do instead? Remember Peter on the water? The waves come, a little stress, a little fear. And where does Peter? (laughs) He he takes his eyes off the Lord. Looks back. Hey, guys, check me out. (laughs) And he starts to sink. His faith in in, in the sinking is lost. So Abraham, when the famine comes, doesn't turn to God, but seeks his own solution. His own solution. Let's go down to, let's go down to, uh, to Egypt. And having turned from faith to self-dependence, what was the next action he, he takes after, after he heads to Egypt? He lies. He lies to protect self and solicits his wife in the deception. This is what's happening here. The survival of the fittest drives are now in operation. I'm not acting in faith. I'm acting on me first now. Protect me. And, of course, the result is trouble for Abraham. (laughs) Trouble for Abraham. And God, in mercy, intervenes therapeutically to preserve Sarah's virtue and deliver Abraham from his own conniving. 
Yet Abraham's reputation with Pharaoh is damaged. Real historic people did real historic stuff. Object lesson for us. We are called, like Abraham, to leave this world and its systems behind and enter a journey of faith with God that will lead to the heavenly promised land. That's what we're called for. Satan will use every means available in order to, available to him, to discourage us, just like he did Abraham. And we will find ourselves in various forms of famine. Famine symbolic of? Places with limited resources. Spiritually speaking, we may find ourselves in a community uh, with people who don't believe the way we do or going to a church who, it, who ridicules and degrades our view of God and tells us that we are demonic or we're from Satan and we're not welcome. Is anybody besides me? I've experienced that directly in a church where I was told that what I was teaching was from Satan and I wasn't welcome. I've had others online do the same thing. We might experience this. These types of things. Any symbolism between Abraham leaving Babylon, which is symbolic of religious imperialism, and then going into Egypt. All we're, we're, you're, you're ahead of me. You're in my notes. You're in my notes. Yes, you are. You're exactly right. Yes. Yep. Okay. Comment and question. I struggled with this idea of him going to Egypt. And then I read this. Um, in some of the outside reading, Patriarchs and Prophets, says many are still tested as was Abraham. They do not hear the voice of God speaking directly from the heavens, but he calls them by the teachings of his word and the events of his providence. So I kind of relaxed in my thinking and said, okay, he went to Egypt. That was the events of his providence. Okay, I really didn't have a have a problem with him going to Egypt because that's one of the things that just happened. The events of God's providence. And he had to deal with it. And, and, I, and I interpret it differently. I interpreted that there's no, there's no evidence that he actually turned to God for deliverance, but he took it upon himself to deliver himself by going to Egypt. And I think this is permitted by God because God gives us liberty. And I think uh, Russell's bringing up a point uh, when we find ourselves in trying circumstances, we will be tempted to go down to Egypt. Egypt, in Bible symbolism, represents godlessness. Who is God that I should know? Pharaoh says. We may have difficulties and feel that we're dying of thirst, spiritually speaking, that we've cried out to the Lord for deliverance in our circumstance. We don't see an answer to our prayer in the time frame that we're looking. And people get to, I see it in my practice all the time, and they give up on God. There isn't any God. If God was real, he wouldn't let this happen. They go down to Egypt, and they become evolutionary believing or godless in their thinking. Well, wasn't Christ himself taken to Egypt, or was he led, or were Mary and Joseph led to Egypt? Uh, Joseph, led to, Joseph led to Egypt. Mm-hmm. But uh, were they led by angels to Egypt, or was that a choice that Joseph made? Yeah, I don't have any recollection in my database that an angel told them to go to Egypt. They told them to flee. Okay. Yeah. But then the, the Matthew um, um, applies the prophecy of the Old Testament, out of Egypt I will call my son, and which is uh, historically applied to my son Israel, the whole nation, but then specifically applied to Jesus as his son, as a prophetic fulfillment. Well, they, they had more protection from the heathen than they did from their own people. But that, but that is a sim- symbolism as well. Call, call us out of Egypt. 
That's exactly right. He's calling us out of the systems of this world. Egypt symbolically also represents Satan's kingdom, and we're called out of Satan's kingdom. And he who knew no sin became sin. So Jesus came, went down into the into the enemy's camp in order to deliver us from the enemy's camp. So these sim, these symbolism and object lessons are true. I'm saying that Abraham, though, and when we're when we're ch- ch- faced with our own personal trials, we're tempted to go to Egypt as the source to deliver us rather than than to God. And our but our choices to compromise with the world will always bring painful and negative consequences. And we see this in Abraham. We don't see Abraham getting a good consequence. We see him having a painful and negative consequence. Uh, maybe it's only because he lied instead of going down to Egypt. Yet God in mercy uh, intervenes for those, uh, for all of us, to give us opportunities for repentance and reconciliation with him. However, we may, just like Abraham, have embarrassed ourselves and damaged, as he had damaged his relationship with Pharaoh, we may suffer damaged human relationships when we've tried to cope on our own. Is another hand somewhere? It was just a clarification. Um, yeah. The angel did tell him to go to Egypt. Um, Matthew 2.13. Okay, good. All right, so the angel said to go to Egypt, and I think it was probably for, for the fulfillment of the object lesson that we just talked about. Mm. But and there's even a deeper object lesson. This thing's just Russell was going. Abraham was led from Babylon... If you, the story of Abraham's life in this three, three area. He was led from Babylon to the promised land and was tempted by famine to go to Egypt. Here we have three distinct places highlighted. Babylon, the promised land, and Egypt. Does this trigger any other Bible prophecies in anybody's mind? King of the North. King of the North and King of the South. Daniel 11, King of the North is identified as Babylon. And later Rome, Babylon and Rome, which represents religious imperialism. As soon as Nebuchadnezzar is converted by the fiery furnace experience, he immediately passes a law that when he speaks against Daniel's God, will be put to death. Believe in God, use this power of the state to punish people who don't believe the same way you do. Religious imperialism. This was uh, Rome also with its papal authority and persecuting people in the Dark Ages who don't believe. Religious imperialism, king of the north. Then there is Egypt. Egypt is godlessness, king of the south. And then there's the promised land in the middle. Satan has always, through human history, had his two opposing forces. The general camps are those who believe in God, but believe he's imperial and authoritarian and will use the power of the state to coerce and punish people who don't worship and do the things the way you say they should. Religious imperialism, believing in God. And godlessness in all its forms, uh, whether it's evolutionism, communism, socialism, paganism, earth worship, and the, and the uh, uh, spirit worship of the ancestors, uh, reincarnation, Eastern mysticism, all the godless stuff. There's lots of forms of it, but it's godlessness versus religious imperialism. And, and these two systems have been fighting back and forth, and the prophecy has the beautiful land in between. And the beautiful land represents the people who actually worship the creator God. And these two systems are fighting to get the people that really understand and worship the beautiful God to pick one side, to be discouraged, to give up, to go into some form of earth worship or mysticism or godlessness, or to go into religious authoritarianism and imperialism. And it's right to get the government to punish those wicked people. So today, in our society today, King of the South is all the godless forces we see. Communism, godless evolutionism, humanism, socialism, leftism, wokeism. This is all, this is all King of the South stuff. 
king of the north is religious imperialism made up of all those who believe in the God of Abraham but would use the power of the state to coerce people and punish people, whether it's Judaism, whether it's Islam with Sharia law, whether it's Christian groups who want to get hold of the government and coerce people to to obey their religious morals. This is all King of the North stuff. And, and the way the, the hold on, let me let me bring this to a conclusion. And the way the prophecy ends up, if you read all the way down through the history, it ends up with the last two movements: godlessness, king of the south, attacks king of the north, enrages the king of the north. The king of the north storms out against him, destroys him, takes his gold, his wealth, and then Michael the prince stands up, and the second coming of Christ comes. I believe personally over the last hundred years or so, we've been seeing the escalating push or attack of godlessness, communism, socialism, godless evolutionism, and what we've been teaching for several generations in our schools now. We've seen the belief in God in our society dropping, 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 dropping. Um, uh, in fact, I, I heard uh, at this event that I just went to that with the, uh, with the, was it the Z generation, uh, 5% of them believe in the Bible God. 95% don't in that generation was a latest Barna survey. Okay. Uh, th- this is, this is King of the South attack. And you see it with the wokeism, the, the transgender stuff. Uh, uh, there's no male, there's no female, all these assaults are seen, but the prophecy says that this, this irrational attack and you see irrational stuff happening enrages the King of the North who storms out against them and takes their power and their wealth. Did anybody see that this week in Florida, a law was passed, and Disney just lost their autonomy. From 1967 until, until this week, uh, Disney, which owns so many hundreds of acres of, of, of land in central Florida, were an independent governing source. They had their own police force, their own government. Uh, I understand their own uh, tax base that they drew from those. And, and, and uh, basically, they were independent governing from the state. This week, that was done away with because of their push of the, of, of the leftism stuff that they've been pushing down there, the state of Florida just rescinded all that and put them and took all their political authority from them. And you will probably watch now, uh, as the, this law cascades, there will now be new taxing authorities. I just read an article yesterday that there will be new taxing authorities in those municipalities that will now start taxing Disney in a way they've never been taxed before, taking their wealth. This is just one example. Look in the news. You'll see the rising up of the king of the north taking power. In, in the uh, county in Wisconsin that uh, the riots, the BLM, BLM riots happened, they had an election, I think it was uh, a few weeks ago, first time in over 40 years a Republican mayor and, and, and three Republican school board members, all three seats that came up for election were, were filled by Republicans, first time in over 40 years. You're, you're, and I could give uh, uh, Seattle. How left is Seattle? They elected a Republican mayor this year. And, and all over the nation, I go on and on. My view is I see this. I'm, I'm not advocating for that. That's, that's political. I'm pointing out Bible prophecy is happening right before our eyes. We're seeing the right, and, and Christian folk are going to be tempted to side with the political forces of, of the right in order to take power and punish the left. I can't tell you as, as this was happening. Christians I was talking to this week, they're rejoicing. They're celebrating. They want more. 
They want a crushing defeat uh, this fall in November. They want to get more power uh, in in the office. And in 2024, they want, uh, uh, obviously, a, a different president. And then they really want to start crushing leftism. And the, and the challenge, the temptation, is going to be so compelling because the goal is going to seem so righteous, but the methods will be the methods of Satan. Now, there is a hand somewhere. Yes. I was just thinking that Abraham and Sarah were not only husband and wife, but she was also his sister. Half-sister, yes. Sister, and yeah. that his fall was probably a little bit conflicting for him because it was half-truth. And in today's world, a lot of the, the things that we see coming from the left or the right is half-truths. And it's very, it's deceptive. It's hard to recognize. Yes. Yes. And I think that maybe Abraham fooled himself a little bit as well. Oh, I don't think there was any chance of that. He, he intentionally, willfully understood that she was his wife, and he intentionally, willfully wanted to present it as the, the half-truth that was true, that you're my sister, and, and hold back the other piece. So he knew. There was no deceit. He didn't think, oh, hey, you know what? She's actually not my wife anymore. No, this was, I don't, I don't think he deceived himself. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But you're right. It was a half truth. What we might call the whitest of white lies, <laughs> but still filled with darkness in the end, because the motive of the, of the communication was to deceive somebody. His intention was to deceive other people for selfish protection. That, that was the real issue. Yeah. And, and if we're not understanding the heart motives behind it and the issues then we look just to the deed, which is what penal legal people do. And you get in a court of law like this. Did you present her as your sister? Yes. And here's the documentation. She is actually. So I told the truth. He's innocent. And that's how it looks in the penal legal model. But he wasn't innocent because his character is being corrupted by practicing methods of selfishness and intentional deceit of another person. And that's the difference between the, the penal model, the law model, the rule model, which looks at the behaviors. Man looks on the outward appearance, the behaviors. The Lord looks on the heart. That's the difference. Tuesday's lesson, second paragraph, says, Abraham's reconnection with God already shows in his relationship with people in the way that he handles the problem with Lot, his nephew, concerning the use of the land. It is Abram's, Abram himself who proposes a peaceful agreement and allows Lot to choose first, an act of generosity and kindness indicative of the kind of man Abraham was. And I think this is well said. It's an excellent point. Abraham, while relying on self, is fearful, goes down, lies to try to protect self. Abraham repents, reconciles with God, and now trusts God with how it turns out for him. You pick. God will bless me either place I go. I don't need to try to watch out for me and get the best. And so you see, I think, there is an immediate heart change motive in trusting God rather than trying to watch out for self. So I really like the point that they pointed that out. Fourth paragraph, in contrast, Abraham's move was an act of faith. Abraham did not choose the land. Uh, choose the land. It was given to him by God's grace. Unlike Lot, Abraham uh, took the land only at God's injunction. It was only when Abram separates from Lot that God speaks to him again. In fact, this is the first recorded time in the Bible that God speaks to Abraham since the call from Ur. Lift up your eyes and so forth and so on. The lesson notes it wasn't until he separated from Lot that God speaks to Abraham again. And there's an object, again, real historical stuff, object lesson. 
Do we ever have people in our lives that interfere with our relationship and connection with God? Do we ever have people in our lives that Satan uses to distract us from our duty who are active in their undermining of our relationship with God? Do we ever have people like that? Do we have a responsibility to determine with whom we associate and on what level of connection, intimacy, closeness we allow them to associate with us? Do we have a responsibility? What if we have family members who are not living for the Lord? Should we ever stop loving them? No. Should we ever stop lifting our family members up in prayer? No. No. But could there be times we set boundaries with certain family members and stop hanging out with them? Yes. And even stop allowing them to come visit at our house? Yes. Yes. What about spouses? Could someone have married a person who is actually being used by Satan to undermine their mission and purpose for God? Could that happen? Samson and Delilah comes to mind. Would Samson have been better off having separated from Delilah? I'll just leave you with that. Wednesday's lesson. But she pleases me. Yeah. The lesson is about the coalition of various kings going to war and Lot being taken captive and Abraham organizing a rescue mission to rescue Lot. The second paragraph, second and third paragraph uh, reads, let's see here, the involvement of so many people from the country of Canaan suggests that the issue at stake is in this conflict was sovereignty over the land. Ironically, the camp of Abram, the truly interested party, uh, because it is... He is the only true owner of the land, is the only force that remains outside of the conflict, at least at first. The reason for Abraham's neutrality is that, Abram, uh, is that for Abram, the promised land was not acquired through force of arms or through his wisdom of political strategies. Abram's kingdom was God's gift. The only reason Abraham will uh, intervene is the fate of his nephew Lot, who was taken prisoner in the course of of the battles. Real historic people doing real historic stuff? Is there an object lesson here? In light of what we discussed about King of the North and King of the South, is there an application to what we just read about in the battles going on? Lot being taken care of Abraham's action. Whose ultimate kingdom were all these various kings and political powers that were fighting at the time of Abraham? Whose ultimate kingdom were they a part of? Every one of them. Remember, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of Palestine. It's found in North America. (laughs) No, he didn't say that. My kingdom is not of this world. The kingdoms of this world are all. Remember when Satan took Jesus to the mountain, he offered him all the kingdoms of the world, not 80% of them. They all are part of Satan's domain. And so these kingdoms at war are actually being inspired in their actions by demonic forces to attack and kill and rape and pillage and all the things that they do. Likewise, object lesson today, Russia and Ukraine, the United States and Iraq or Afghanistan or China and Iran are all Satan's kingdoms. God's kingdom is not to be found in any human government. 
All human governments are built upon imposed law, which are Satan's form of governing, and all human governments commit injustices in the name of doing justice. They all do it. Just as in Abram's day, Satan's various governments war against each other as a means of taking God's people captive. So too today, Satan has his kingdoms and human governments of this world war against each other in all kinds of ways in order to take the minds and hearts, if not the bodies, of people captive. Satan's agents engage in economic wars, political wars, biological wars. Think COVID and man-made virus or man-made mutated virus physical wars, cultural wars. Think wokeism, which is an attack on the culture. And all of these attacks, the transgender movement, the BLM movement, um, the uh, recent attacks on flags, uh, the national monuments, the names of various places and schools and institutions and on marriage, all of this is actually an attack on the bedrock principles of Christianity. That's what it's an attack on. It's a cultural war to get you to devalue what the Bible values. So in Abraham's day, Satan's kingdoms went to war and took Lot captive. Abraham had to decide what to do. Does he go to war to destroy the kingdoms of the world and establish his own earthly government with him and his people in charge so that they can pass their laws and punish anybody who doesn't obey them? So that he can feel safe and his family can be safe from the threats? I mean, we want everybody to be safe, don't we? It's all about being safe. You will find, actually, the path that Jesus calls us to is not, about a, is not a path of safety. It's a path of danger. It's a path that goes to the valley of the shadow of death. Not a a path that goes into uh, a, a hibernation and a hiding away from the threats in this world. So what does he do? He actually goes to war, but for a purpose. Was it to overthrow the other kingdoms and the other governments? To rescue Lot was his purpose, not to overthrow the governments. To deliver somebody held captive against their will. Lot wasn't there voluntarily. Lot, if I suggest to you that had Lot gone and enlisted with one of the armies, got himself a commission, he's a, a, a general leading a bunch of soldiers for one of these kingdoms, I submit to you Abraham would have not gone to deliver him. He was there, a captive against his will. The object lesson, we are at war. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we use are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. We are engaged in a war. Many of our loved ones have been taken captive by the lies and the corruption of both the world and the penal, legal, distorted view of God taught in the church. They're captive in either the king of the south or the king of the north. 
And God is calling for people that won't use guns and tanks, but will use the sword of the Spirit and wield it to cut through the lies and the distortions, present the truth to deliver our friends and neighbors and family from this corruption that is destroying hearts and minds in our society. Thursday's lesson uh, focuses on Abraham paying tithe to Melchizedek. In the third paragraph, the lesson says, Melchizedek is, however, not to be identified with Christ. Again, maybe I'm being a little bit too critical, but I don't like the way this is worded. I think it should be worded, instead of Melchizedek, however, is not to be identified with Christ, Melchizedek, however, is not to be identified as being Christ. Because the scripture clearly identifies Melchizedek with Christ. Priest of the Most High God, yes. Yes, he is a representative of Christ. So um, the view, this view is taught by um, some of the founders of the Adventist Church. Ellen White was one of them in Selected Messages, uh, Volume 1, page 409. She writes, It is Christ that spoke through Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek was not Christ, but he was the voice of God in the world, the representative of the Father. So he is identified with Christ, his representative, but he is not Christ. Yeah, I think that's the way I would have preferred it to be said. What's the significance of Abraham paying tithe to Melchizedek? Any significance to that? It's a great design law. Who, who received the promises, Melchizedek or, or Abraham? Abraham is the one who received the promises to be the fulfillment, to inherit the land, to inherit the, the, uh, to be the, the, the father of the seed that, the, that all the nations of the world would be blessed, but he, he pays tithe to Melchizedek. And, of course, the New Testament, Paul makes the case. And Levi, who was to receive the tithes from all the people, was in Abraham, and therefore, in his loins still hadn't been born yet, and therefore, Levi and all of his priestly descendants also paid tithe to Melchizedek through Abraham. But they're the ones to receive it. That's what Paul makes the case on. What's Paul breaking down when he says that? The legal model. uh, The idea that, that you have rights based on your genetics. That's how they thought. If you're of this tribe, if you're a descendant of Abraham biologically, you're good. God gave him a promise. It doesn't matter whether we're righteous or sinful, wicked or holy. We get to inherit the promise because we're children of Abraham. This is not what the scripture actually teaches. The true children of Abraham are those who have faith like Abraham. They're the ones the Bible identifies as being the ones that are heirs according to the promise. But what's the significance then? or the difference between tithes and offerings. Tithe and offerings. Is there a difference? Yes. What's the difference? Okay, tithe represents 10%. Okay, the 10% you give in tithe. What's different than giving an offering? Tithe is understood to be our lived out, practiced acknowledgement of our partnership with God in all things. That all of our success in life, no matter where we have that excess, success, is only due to the fact that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, and we who have chosen to accept him now live in partnership with him. And returning the tithe to God is returning his portion. It's not our portion, it's his. 
We're, think of it as a business partnership, if you will. And you're a 90% owner, and he's a 10% owner in, in, the, in the gains of this world. Returning the tithe is not giving him something of yours. It's returning something of his, and it's an acknowledgement of your relationship and partnership with God in all things. That's the tithe. The offering can be an offering that's given because you're thankful to God, you appreciate him, you want to give something and honor God. But, but offerings can also be given to various programs or outreach or projects that you feel particularly passionate about for some reason. What is the tithe supposed to be used for? What's its purpose as we understand it? <laughs> to spread the gospel. Okay, to spread the gospel. Absolutely right. Uh, to whom is the tithe to be paid? Those who do an effective job spreading the gospel. Those, okay. So, so is the tithe to be paid to the church? And if you say the church, I would say which church? You know, obviously the church that's promoting the gospel. <laughs> then the question is, well, what's the gospel, right? Which church is it that is promoting the gospel? And what gospel is being promoted? The good news. The good news about what? Does the good news change over time? The ultimate good news is the same good news. Does its presentation by people advance and develop over time? Did the reformers, were they advancing the gospel? Were they promoting the gospel? Martin Luther, was he moving the gospel forward? Yes. Yes. Would you today recommend that people give their tithe to advance the gospel that Martin Luther was advancing, a 500-year-old gospel? No. That's no longer the gospel. It was the truth for his day, but truth is unfolding. God is an infinite God, and, and the gospel is constantly moving forward. To, to, to support a message that Luther gave in the way Luther gave it is not the gospel for this time. It actually obstructs the gospel for this time. Do we, have, though, have a, a responsibility similar to the Reformers to actually evaluate and examine the various, quote, gospels or messages that are being presented by various groups and organizations, examine what's being presented in light of Scripture, and come to our own conclusion in a prayerful relationship with the Holy Spirit about what is the gospel for this time, and are we supporting it? Is that our responsibility? Should we decide then, intelligently and purposefully, to send our ties to groups and organizations and perhaps even individuals that we see advancing the gospel, or are we to mindlessly send our ties to the organization of our birth, the church in which our parents raised us, regardless of what gospel that organization advances? Is it possible there are many sincere, good-hearted Christians who have been conditioned to send their tithe money blindly to church organizations that are not actually presenting the gospel, and they're innocently funding programs and materials that actually work against the final message of mercy for the world. Is that possible? And what is the final message of mercy to the world? There's a hand somewhere. Yeah? Well, what tithe was Abraham paying to Melchizedek? Tithe from where? From, 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 all, the, from all the wealth he just took in his raid and rescuing Lot. But I thought he said he didn't take anything, not even the thongs of the sandals. I think you, he didn't take anything for himself. You're right. He didn't take anything. So isn't that right? He didn't take anything? So then he was paying on his increase of his, of his herds and his flocks that were increasing every year. Uh, oh, so not from the raid he did. No, if he didn't take anything from the raid, he wouldn't pay tithe on the raid. So good, good point. 
So here, what's the final message of mercy? The gospel. Here's one view out of Christ's Object Lessons 415. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating, at this time, illuminating in its influence and saving its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the last, is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. This is in direct contrast to the penal, legal, authoritarian God who requires the blood of a human sacrifice to be paid to him to propitiate his wrath to keep him from torturing you and killing you. That is not the gospel. Think about it. Would it be good news that you get to live forever in heaven with the God who is the kind of being Satan says he is? That's not good news. The ultimate good news is that God is just like Jesus revealed him to be. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And Ellen White, one of the founders of the Adventist Church, about her own personal tithe, wrote the following. There are minister's wives who have devoted been devoted to earnest, whole-souled working, giving Bible readings and prayer in the, uh, praying with families, helping alongside the efforts uh, just as successful as their husbands. These women give their whole time and are told that they receive nothing for their labors because their husbands receive wages. I tell them, go forward, and all such decisions will be revised. The word says the laborer is worth of his hire. When any such decision has been made, I will, in the name of the Lord, protest. I will feel it my duty to create a fund from my tithe money to pay these women who are accomplishing just and essential work as ministers are doing. And this tithe I will reserve for work in the name of in the same line as that of ministers, hunting for souls, fishing for souls. And then, and that's uh, um, Daughters of God, page 106. And the next is out of Second Manuscript Release, page 99. This is Ellen White writing. It has been presented to me for years. By whom? Who do you think she's referring to that has been presenting this to her for years? It has been presented to me for years that my tithe was to be appropriated by myself to aid the white and colored ministers who were neglected and did not receive sufficient income to properly support their families. I have myself appropriated my tithe to the most needy cases brought to my notice. I have been instructed to do this as the money... Who do you think was instructing her? I was instructed to do this as the money is not withheld the money is not withheld from the Lord's treasury. So giving it directly to needy individuals that she's convicted are doing the gospel work, she says, is not withholding the money from the Lord's treasury. It is, it is not a matter that should be commented upon. We're commenting upon it. <laughs> Some cases have been before me for years, and I have supplied their needs from the tithe, as God has instructed me to do. And if any person shall say to me, Sister White, will you appropriate my tithe where you know it will be most needed? I shall say, yes, I will, and I have done so. That'll get you sent to Australia. (laughs) Out the door you go. (laughs) Okay. This individual believed that the tithe was to go directly to people who were not employed by the institution, but who were advancing the gospel message. Acting, and she was acting she believed 
at the direction of God in doing so, and the money that she was using in this way was going into God's treasury, according to her. So what do you think the gospel is for this time? I encourage you if... Would you grab me one of the magazines? The, the final message? Final message, yeah. Um, I encourage you, if you haven't read our final message, and Russell's going to hold it up here, if you haven't read the final message, uh, check it out, because I think that we are advancing the, the gospel message, and uh, see if you agree with it. Read it, check it out, and see if you agree. Um, this is what historic Adventism taught and what we were called to teach. It says in Great Controversy, page 582, the last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle we are now entering, a battle between the laws of men, imposed rules, and the precepts of Jehovah, the principles upon which reality are designed to operate. And we are called to call people out of Babylon, imperial law, into worshiping him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, the creator God, whose laws are the laws the reality operate upon. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truths you've had recorded in Scripture, brought down to us through time, that we can read and study about the, the war that has been going on, that began in heaven, that spread to this earth, and that you have uh, not abandoned us, but you loved us so much, you sent Jesus, and you had your, your people through time uh, who exercised their faith and trust in you their own personal journeys recorded so that we can not only learn about their history, but we can learn about your methods and principles in contrast to those of the world. And we ask that your spirit will uh, write your law upon our hearts and minds, enable us to be effective representatives for your kingdom, and move the final message of mercy forward in this world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.